The Old Testament reading is from Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And he said, do not come near, take, off your, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Ab- Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Mos- Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perserites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression from which the Egyptians oppress them. Come and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain." Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And this is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The epistle reading is from Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in every situation, I am to be content. I know to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and all and every circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, and can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 20th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. There came to Jesus some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, 
Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's, man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? And the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are concerned worthy to attain of that age and to the resurrection from the dead may marry, may neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die any more, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. And then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. So uh, really quickly before we start, back in Philippians 4, uh, take a look. remember to take a look again at the back of the bulletin. Uh, with the uh, information there about the mercy ministries, which we're starting. Uh, Shanna talked about those uh, with us last Sunday morning at the beginning of the service. Uh, this is something I would love for us to have uh, universal participation with. And, and I, I know that some of you are doing this sort of thing on your own. And that's terrific. Uh, let us be involved with you. If you have something good that you're doing on your own that we can be involved with, like, like do it with the church. Uh, everything is better uh, when you're doing it together. I didn't mean for that to rhyme, uh, but it did, and I'm, I'm not ashamed of it. If, look, read through there in the back, and if there's something that, that just really kind of interests you, there's simple stuff in there that you could do real easily. There's like working type things that you can do. There's relational things that you can do. Uh, please give Shanna or, Shanna or Carmen a call. We had a good response last week. But it, again, just to reiterate what we'll be talking about, God's called us to be his hands and feet here in Glen Carbon. That means the primary purpose of what's going on here this morning is not what's going on here this morning. The primary purpose of what's going on here this morning is for fuel for the mission of Jesus Christ here in Glen Carbon. It's absolutely essential. It's absolutely essential that we live out the gospel and speak out the gospel in this community. And this is a great way to do this together, these things. So uh, uh, take a look at that and then speak with Shanna or Carmen after church or give them a call. Or the people, uh, there's other people who are involved in the specific ministries uh, feel free to get a hold of them too. Okay, let's talk about Philippians chapter four. We're here to the very last section of Philippians, verses four, uh, verses ten through twenty. Actually, verses ten through the end of the chapter. And uh, so, just kind of to reset here, why does Paul write Philippians? Paul Paul starts a church in Philippi. That church in Philippi finds out several years later that Paul's in prison at Rome. They send a guy, Epaphroditus, is a member of their church, and they send him to the church in Rome to give a financial gift to Paul so that he can have something to eat and something to wear while he's there. Epaphroditus hangs out with Paul for a while and they minister together. Paul writes this letter. So there's two reasons why Paul writes this. Actually, three reasons why Paul writes this letter. One is to send Epaphroditus back home and say, hey, thanks for sending Epaphroditus. He was a big help to me. I wish I could have kept him a long, long time. 
excuse him for being gone as long as he was. He wasn't goofing off. He was actually serving the Lord with me. He says this in chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2. Second reason is the ostensible reason, which is to thank them for the gift that they sent. That's what we're going to be talking about the next uh, uh, several weeks here. The third reason is the main reason. Do you know what I mean by ostensible reason and main reason? Have you ever had to have a conversation with somebody that maybe was not going to be super comfortable? Either you had to say to them, I don't like you doing this, or you had to ask them for a favor. And you would get together with them. You wouldn't just like, you wouldn't just, when I taught, uh, when I graduated from college, I taught uh, high school English and coached basketball for a while. And our principal told us that when you have parent-teacher conferences, you say good things, then you say the bad stuff you have to say. Then you say the good things. You don't ever like say, here's bad stuff, and you just hit people with bad stuff. So you, you know what I'm talking about, right? You get together with somebody and you say, hey, let's get together and talk about your trip to Florida or whatever. And in the course of the trip to Florida, you might say, hey, I really need you to do me a favor. So the, the ostensible reason is to talk about the trip to Florida, but the main reason is to talk about the difficult thing you have to talk about. The ostensible reason for the letter is to say thank you for the gift. The main reason, though, is to say, and remember, he spends three chapters building up this theological edifice around the, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what that means for Christian life. That means we share, that we share in the suffering of Christ together. That means, Paul says, when I'm in prison, it's okay. It's plan A. It's God's plan to rescue the guards who are guarding me in prison. Don't worry about me. He talks about being one in the Spirit. I, I uh, appeal to you, he says three different times, to have the same mind that Jesus Christ has, who, even though he was God, did not consider being God something to be grasped, but made himself a servant. So put each other first, unity in the Spirit. All that is leading up to new creation. All that is leading up to, uh, in chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 4, where he says, uh, I, I beseech you, Odia and Syntyche, these two women, who are my co-workers, these are my fellow laborers in Christ, have the same mind in Christ. The whole letter is to tell these two women, not just to get along, That's we can, we can manage to do that just by ignoring each other, right? But to have the same mind that Jesus Christ had together. That's the main point. Now the next couple of weeks we'll talk about the ostensible point, the, the thank you for the gift. Even that's not as simple as it would seem. Because Paul can't do anything without like bringing out the theology of the cross into it. And so he says, thank you for this gift. But he does it in a way that's kind of weird. And maybe you caught this while uh, Bob was reading it earlier. Verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had not. It's a funny way to say thank you for the gift. You know, I thank God, I rejoice that you finally, like, were good to me. You remembered me finally. I don't think he means that. I don't think he means I was kind of waiting around for you to finally notice me. I think he means... You had, you, you finally had the opportunity. You have loved me for a long time since we've known each other, but now finally you've had the opportunity to show your love in a tactile way by sending me this gift. Not that I, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I had to be, and that's another weird thing, right? Somebody gives you a gift and you say, look, I, I didn't really need this, but thanks. It's kind of a, a backhanded way of saying, you know, I didn't, thanks but no thanks, right? I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Okay, so Paul's in a difficult position. And this is all, we talked about this in, in our last elders meeting, the elders did. Uh, the, the, the grace of accepting generosity 
the grace of accepting an unasked for gift. It's not the easiest thing in the world to do, right? Somebody gives, somebody gives, I'll just use myself as an example. Somebody gives me a gift and and what I want, what I don't want to do is I don't want to say, Oh my gosh, I needed this so much. I was just in a desperate situation and you saved me. One, because, as Paul's going to point out, none of us are actually in that position where I have to have that money right now or I'm doomed. I've learned how to have no money, Paul says. But part of being a Christian is not, is knowing how to not have money. And if I, if I imply to you that, oh my word, I needed that money right now. I've just somehow undermined the gospel, undermined the reality that Jesus is all that I need. I'm not saying money's not important. You know what I'm saying, right? But if I give the impression that, oh, you saved me, then I'm saying that Jesus didn't save me. Also, here's another side of that. If I say, like, oh my, oh my word, that's so amazing. Thank you. I was just so desperate for money right then. I am putting a burden on you to keep it coming. You know, this, this guy needs me really bad. I'm placing a burden, I'm placing the burden of my salvation upon you and you're not able to carry that. And vice versa, right? If I do the same thing to you, if I imply that I need you, even if it's like Angel, the people closest to me, I need you in order to be fulfilled or happy. I'm placing messianic burdens on her or on you guys that no human outside of Jesus is fit to bear. So the other thing though is if you say, look, I know you're trying to be nice, but really I don't need that gift. What you're doing is you're implying that that sort of love that would motivate that gift is not important. And you don't want to do that either. So you see like the, the place that Paul's, Paul's, the fence that Paul's trying to ride here between too much gratitude, which would imply that Jesus is not doing his job, not enough gratitude, which would imply that the gift is not important. And Paul's going to say here, he's going to say this week and next week, he's going to say, I need the gift that you sent, but I don't need the gift that you sent. And the way that I need the gift that you sent is not the way you think that I need it. It's kind of convoluted. Anyway, don't, don't worry about that. Strike the last sentence if it didn't make sense. What we're going to talk about today is Paul saying, here's why I don't really need the gift that you sent me. I'm grateful for it, but I don't need the gift that you sent me. Next week, we'll look at the verses 14 and following where he says, you know what? I really did need that gift, and here's why. It's an unexpected twist on the answer, but I really did need that gift. So it's both of these things. All right. Okay. So let's get into this. Uh, the gift, here's, here's why Paul says, like, I, I didn't, I don't need capital N, the gift that you sent because verse 11, I'm not speaking of being in need for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I can be content. Even if you hadn't sent the gift, I'll be fine. Verse 12, let's look at verse 12 and 13, or just verse 12. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. That's a great line. I've learned the secret. It's like there's this secret knowledge. There's this trick to being content with whatever you have that a lot of us haven't mastered, frankly, you know. Most of us are discontent with the things that we have. But I've learned the secret, Paul says, of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Let's talk for a few minutes about our options. What are our options for, we all, we all want to be content. Nobody likes the feeling of, I don't have enough money. Nobody likes the feeling of, I wish my relationship with this person was better. Nobody likes that feeling. Nobody likes the feeling of, my health is bad and I don't know how it's going to turn around. Nobody likes that feeling. 
But how do you get to the place where you can be content with these things? Here are several options. The first option is, like, Paul's listeners, the Philippians, would have heard this option immediately. It's the Stoic option. They would have, as soon as, as soon as Paul said, I've learned the secret of being content, they would have instantly thought about the ancient Greek philosophy of Stoicism, which says this. Here's what Stoicism is. The life of reason in the mind is the true and only good. The life of like knowing things in your mind. Rationalism. The Stoics were very rationalistic. What that means is that all the things that try to make you feel things, like you need more money and so you feel poor, you feel like this desire for I wish I could eat better food or had a better car. That's all these feelings that are trying to attack the life of the mind. And so what you need to do is learn to cut off these feelings because it's just trying to sap your energy. It's trying to sap your brain of the energy it needs to embrace the world realistically. So Paul says some kind of stoic things here. I know how to be hungry. I know how to have abundance too. One thing he says that's not stoic though is this. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. The stoics, they could embrace hunger. They could embrace poverty but they could not embrace humiliation. And I think probably a lot of us are like that too. I mean, I, all of us wish we had more money and more things. But I would rather be poor and not humiliate. I want my dignity at least. Like I, I know that I drive a junky car. That's not an illustration, by the way. My car actually is junky. But, 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 but at least I can, at least, you know, I'm the kind of, I, I, can, I can walk with my head held high. I've not been socially humiliated, even though my car's kind of junky. So, Paul's actually saying, no, I've learned how to be socially humiliated. I've learned how to live life chained to a Roman soldier. It's not just about being poor or being hungry or being rich or being well-fed or having nice clothes or junky clothes. It's about, I've embraced the shame of the cross. Stoicism can't do that for you. As much as you try, you can tell yourself, it's okay that everybody thinks you're a loser. It's not okay that everybody thinks you're a loser. And you know that. You can't live like that. Stoicism doesn't have the power to help you with that. Another option is, and this is, um, there's sort of an Eastern religion option. I'm not saying that Jesus knew about Buddhism, but Jesus did. He was aware of Eastern religions, Eastern mystery religions, which said things like Buddhism says, which say things like, the problem with your discontent is that you have these desires. You desire money. You desire shelter. You desire clothing. You desire sex. You desire food. What you need, and all your desires for all those things are going to leave you empty. You'll never have enough money or, or, or clothing or food or power or sex that you actually want. And so what you need to do is you need to cut those desires off. You're discontent because you have desires, so stop having desires. That's actually the whole goal of Buddhism, is to teach you to not have desires anymore. Well, I mean, you can see uh, the problem with that right off the bat, right? You can't not desire. As soon as you desire to not have desires, you're already stuck in another desire. It's not possible to live without desires. You can't just shut off your volition any more than you can shut off your brain or shut off your emotions. We're not built like that. So ultimately, that Eastern mystic religion that Paul would have been familiar with uh, leaves us empty as well. What about fatalism? I don't mean like a sort of a nihilistic fatalism, although some people grapple with their troubles like that. Like the world is a broken place and we're all going to burn up, so eat, drink, and be merry. I'm talking about a Christian sort of fatalism. You ever hear Christians talk like this? Ooh, that sort of que sera, sera. Like, well, you don't, you don't have any control over your circumstances, you know. Yeah, yeah, Paul, you're in prison, but what are you going to do? You know, you're not in charge of these things. Just keep your chin up and, 
you know, try to make the best of it and hopefully everything will work out good. I hear Christians talk like this all the time. I hear me talk like this all the time. If people come and talk to me about their problems, I'll find myself drifting off into case sarah, sarah, you know. Well, it's, you just, hey, you just hang in there, you know, try to get exercise and some, you know, eat, eat healthy and read your Bible and pray. And hopefully, you know, I'm pretty sure it'll all work out. Again, even when I say that to you as convincing and as eloquent as I am, that was a joke. You know that that's not true. That that if, if I if I send you away, you know, Jesus says, this is you're talking about mercy ministries. Jesus says, if somebody poor comes up to you and says, I have no food or I have no clothing, and you say, go in peace, brother, be filled. You're actually leaving them complete, completely empty. This sort of notion of like, uh, it's, God will take care of it. You, you know that that's not good enough. I'm not talking about not trust. I'm not saying not trust in God. But this sort of like, eh, it all shakes out in the end, you know. Keep a stiff upper lip. This is not good enough. This is not good enough to get us through prison or through hunger or through public humiliation either. Positive thinking. I hear this a lot from Christians. Like, you just have to think good thoughts. Like, just be focused on the good. Don't focus on the bad. Uh, again, I don't know about you, but, and I know, I, I freely admit I have a morbid turn to my personality. I don't, I, I don't focus on good stuff. Angela will tell you, like, I worry about things nonstop. If there's one person in the church that's upset with me, I will obsess over that. I'll stay up at night about that. There's one thing that's going wrong in my life and 500 things that are going right. I will poke at that one thing that's going wrong until it just consumes my whole existence. Like I don't need somebody telling me, like, hey, have a better attitude, buddy. I can't have a better attitude. I'm not programmed to have a better attitude. I am by nature a pessimist. Here's what Paul says, though. Verse 13. Here's the, here's the key to being content. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's a great verse. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Lots of Christians have used this for lots of reasons, some of them good, some of them bad. A couple of years ago, I spoke at a junior high graduation at one of the Lutheran schools in the area. And I was asked to speak about the class verse, which was Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And so I did. I prepared this sermon to talk about the text we're talking about this morning. And uh, the valedictorian from the class, this really sweet eighth grade kid, like, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, this sounds really bad. Like I'm picking on eighth grade kids. I, I don't, I feel bad about that. But he stood up and he said, you know, we've really learned in our time here at this school that we can do all things through him who strengthens me. We've passed biology with the help of Jesus. We got third place in state last year uh, with the help of Jesus. And th- this is actually not what this text is saying to you. I know that if you pull this out and you stencil this on the wall in your living room, or you put it on a magnet and stick it on your refrigerator, you can make it say, dang well, whatever you want. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I actually can't. I will never be a professional tennis player, no matter how much I rely on Jesus. This is not what this text is talking about. Instead, what it's talking about this, when he says, I can do all things, what he means is, I can live in all circumstances. I can be wealthy. I can be dirt poor. I can be publicly accepted as noble and intelligent and witty and funny. I can be publicly humiliated as worthless and of no value. I can have nice clothes. I can have bad clothes. I can drive a fancy car. I can drive a non-fancy car. I can have lots of friends. I can be lonely and abandoned. I have learned, the secret of learning this is being in Jesus Christ. I can do these things through Jesus. Now, when he says through Jesus, he doesn't mean I see Jesus as an example and then I try to be like Jesus. 
That's true enough, but it's deeper than that. Just seeing Jesus as an example doesn't help me. I can't be like Jesus. But Jesus can be like Jesus. And by being in Jesus, by faith, which Paul says we are, we've been united to Christ by faith. By Jesus being faithful, I can be faithful. Look, I mean, so Jesus is the one who owns the cattle on the thousand hills, and yet he didn't have money to pay the temple tax. Jesus is the one who invented the entire universe, and yet he freely admitted that he was homeless and warned his friends about this. Like, if you follow me, we're not heading anywhere here. I've got no place to stay. I'll be sleeping outside tonight. Jesus is the one who created every single human being, knows us all intimately. Every human being throughout history, and yet he died alone, abandoned by his closest friends. You are, you've been abandoned? You're not really abandoned because the abandoned one is with you. You're poor, you need money. You're not really poor and need money because the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills is with you. You're struggling with really, really bad health and you're worried about it. You're not really, really struggling with that. I'm not trying to minimize what we're going through here, but I'm just saying you're connected to Jesus who is the source of life and health, who has been raised from the dead and promises you that your body will be cured someday. The secret to being content is not positive thinking. It's not a stiff upper lip. It's not, let's all just get along here. The secret to being content is being united to Jesus Christ. Amen.